0: We do want to welcome you to uh, the Junction Church, and uh, glad you can join us this morning. Uh, always there's a virtual offering plate available on our website. You can just uh, go to junctionchurch.com and click the give button, or you can text the word Junction Church, all one word, to 77977, and just thank you for those who've uh, been supporting us uh, through this crazy pandemic that uh, doesn't seem to be coming to an end yet. Um, next week, Good Friday, uh, we will be doing uh, an online service at nine o'clock in the morning, and uh, we'll just be doing a, a short service reading through the passion story from the Gospel of Mark. So that'll be coming up this Friday at uh, nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, with that, uh, we are going to um, look at uh, the question of why did Jesus die today? And um, we've been doing a series called Portraits of Jesus. We've looked at the portrait of of Jesus as God revealer and the portrait of Jesus as the one who who challenges us to risk um, radical or love radically. Today we're going to talk about Jesus crucified, the portrait of Jesus crucified. And one of the most common questions asked about the crucifixion of Jesus is, is why did Jesus die? And so that's what we will be looking at today. And uh, is that PowerPoint there? We could throw that up. That'd be great. Thank you. Perfect. Awesome. Uh, according to Wikipedia, there are uh, about 2.4 billion Christians in the world. About 30 percent of the world's population uh, would consider themselves Christian, and uh, it's a very diverse Christian population in the world. Uh, sometimes we think as Protestants we're in the majority, but actually we're kind of more in the minority. Uh, there's more, far more Catholics than there are Protestants, and close behind, of course, Protestants are the, well, 12% Orthodox, and there's other Christians, but uh, we have one more week to Easter, and next week during Good Friday and Easter Sunday, uh, about 30% of the world's population is going to be celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus, and for a lot of Christians, this is sort of the, the, the holiday that has the most spiritual meaning to them. Now, sometimes Christmas has the most pizzazz and lights and presents and, and fun, but Easter, for most Christians, has the deepest spiritual meaning, and, uh, and so there's going to be a lot of Christians celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus, and so to prepare us for Easter Sunday we're going to be looking at the cross today. Now when it comes to the cross of Christ and it comes to these 2.4 billion Christians around the world as people look at the cross uh, not all Christians actually answer the question of why did Jesus die the same way? Uh, we might think because we're often sort of in our own denominations or our own groups that that all Christians kind of look at the cross and celebrate the death of Jesus in the same way uh, but all of our brothers and sisters all across this world celebrate the death of Jesus in different ways. Now, if you're familiar with the theology of uh, why did Jesus die, you may have known this, this, this fancy word called atonement theories. And these are basically theories of, uh, of the question, why did Jesus die? And you notice that they're called theories because nobody knows for sure, <laughs> nobody has the complete answer. But there are a lot of theories out there of why Jesus died. And and these are just some of the more popular theories. The Christus Victor theory, the example theory, the moral influence theory, the satisfaction theory, the penal substitution theory, the ransom theory, the governmental theory, the mystical theory, the vicarious repentance theory, and there's lots of more. Those are just sort of the major ones. But there are tons and tons of different ways that Christians all over this planet, when they look at the cross... And if you ask them, why did Jesus die, Uh, you would get a lot of different answers. Now, I'm not going to go through all these today, but what I did do is sort of take some categories of the way different Christians look at this, and we're going to look at some of those today, because this might help you actually appreciate the death of Jesus in a different way that maybe you've never seen before, and this will help you maybe if you come across uh, another Christian, maybe you come across an, an Eastern Orthodox Christian and you'll be able to, to understand maybe how they see the cross differently than the way certain Protestants see the cross. And so this will help us, uh, I think, appreciate the cross in different ways. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to do. Uh, some of these may be new to you. Some of these maybe you've never come across before. I tried to put some different ones in here. Uh, but the first view that some Christians hold is, is this. So if you ask them why did Jesus die, their primary answer would be, well, Jesus died because this is what our shame and sin does it kills and they might begin with John chapter 1 where it says the one who is the true light that of course is Jesus who gives light to everyone was coming into the world he came into the very world he created but the world did not recognize him he came to his own people and even they rejected him so their primary answer would be why did Jesus die well this is what our sin, this is what our shame does. It was the religious system, it was, it was our brokenness that killed Jesus on the cross. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, this actually seems to be one of the primary answers that the Gospel writers actually give. Uh, all through the Gospels, when it's talking about the death of Jesus, it seems to be saying that, that it's our sin, it's, it's the religious leaders, it's the broken system that killed Jesus. For instance, Luke 9 says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Or Mark 10, Jesus said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence Him to die. So they wouldn't say it's it's the Father sentencing Jesus to die. It would say it's the religious people. It's our brokenness. It's it's humanity that, that killed Jesus. It seems to be what they talked about in the book of Acts. Uh, you killed, he's talking to humans, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Or, or Acts chapter 4, Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified. Or Acts 5, uh, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. Baxter Kruger uh, I said it this way, uh, Jesus did not die at the hands of a ruthless father, who needed to be appeased. The witnesses of the Gospels is that Jesus died at the hands of ruthless, ruthless men. The mocking, the shame, the derision, the, the cursing, the damning, the hatred, the treachery, the rejection was not from His Father or from the Holy Spirit, but from us. We damned Him, we cursed Him, we betrayed and crucified the Father's eternal Son, even while we were breathing Christological air. Our father never needed a sacrifice, we did. And we, as one man, with one accord, damned his son. And our father accepted our faith and our will and our decision to crucify his son as the means to establish and and real and uh, means to establish and real and everlasting relationship with us inside inside our faithless betrayal. This is salvation. This is adoption. This is redeeming genius and love almost beyond our wildest imaginations. And so uh, we are the ones, our sin, our shame. We crucified Jesus, and yet yet God knew that all along, but He uses that to bring about our salvation and freedom. Now, another view that is sort of similar to this, uh, that is this, that Jesus died because we needed a sacrifice, a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And this view sort of traces the history of sacrifice uh, all throughout human history. I mean, way even before the Old Testament was written with all those sacrificial laws, humans were constantly sacrificing things to try to get favor from the gods. And so, you know, if a volcano erupted, you know, the mountain god is angry, so we got to go up there and sh- throw in a virgin, or we got to throw in some animals, or throw in something nice to calm the volcano god down. And, uh, you know, if we want, want our god to help us in war, we need to sacrifice something really good, because then maybe our god will like us, and, and he'll help us and bless us. And and, and we sort of see this again in sort of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And this is why some theologians would say that, that the, the Old Testament sacrificial system was never actually God's full intent. It wasn't his, his ideal, but God sort of adopted things from the culture in order to bring them towards the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. And so they would say that all throughout human history, we've had this view that the gods need sacrifices and we're constantly sacrificing stuff. And so. God finally says, look, I know you guys need a sacrifice, and so I'm going to give you the ultimate best sacrifice that you can never compete with, and this sacrifice will end all sacrifices. It's putting an end to this idea that somehow you need to sacrifice something in order to make God happy. And these these folks would look at verses like Hosea 6.6, where it says, I want you to show love not offer, offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. And so they would say it was never God's ideal will or uh, to have people sacrificing stuff to him all the time because God just wants relationship. He, want, he wants love. He wants connection. And because people are constantly sacrificing, God says, I'm going to bring the best sacrifice and it's going to be my son. And through this, you are going to know that you never need to sacrifice another, another thing to get my attention because you already have my attention. Uh, This view might look at Hebrews 10, where it says those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. In other words, they didn't actually do anything when it came to our sin. Christ said, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings. So again, this idea that God God never wanted these things or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them. So God wasn't even pleased with them. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. In other words, there's something in humans where we just we just think God needs all these sacrifices. Yet, God never wanted those, and, and, and He wasn't pleased with them. But in verse 12, our high priest offered himself, this is Jesus, to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. In other words, this one's going to end it all. This one's going to show you that you don't need to sacrifice something to get God's attention. God already loves you. He has your attention. He is for you, not against you. And so Christ comes as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, as God says, you don't need to sacrifice any more. And so that's kind of another view, why some Christians will be celebrating the cross this Sunday. Another view is, Of uh, Jesus dying on the cross. And if you ask some Christians, why did Jesus die on the cross? They they would say this that Jesus died to relive our lives and reverse the curse. And this view is interesting because this is the, the only view which really, for the most part, takes into play the fact that Jesus had to be born as a baby, grow up as a child, as a teenager, as an adult, and then finally die on the cross. Um, And this is often found in in sort of Eastern Orthodox circles, though it's found in in Catholic and Protestant as well. Uh, One uh, Eastern Orthodox writer, Daryl Bowen, said, Christ became human to heal mankind by perfectly united the human nature to the divine nature in his person. Through the incarnation, Christ took on human nature, becoming the second Adam, and entered into every stage of humanity from infancy to adulthood, uniting it to God. Then he suffered death to enter Hades and destroy it. And so the idea is that Jesus was born as a baby, and then he grows up as a child, and he becomes a teenager, becomes an adult, and finally dies on the cross. And what he is doing, because he is human but also divine, he's uniting his humanness with the divine and taking all the brokenness found in all the stages of our life. The brokenness found is when we are babies and with broken parents and, and then we're a child in our brokenness with broken parents and teenagers and we're adults that are broken and, and finally we die. And as Jesus goes through all those stages, he's absorbing that brokenness from our childhood, absorbing that brokenness as teenagers, absorbing the brokenness of, of the world into his divinity. And because the divine, as it says in John, where, you know, the darkness can never overcome the light, that darkness is dissipated as he absorbing that into his life. And finally, Jesus dies, breaking the power of sin and death. And so they would look at this large scope that Jesus is absorbing the darkness into the divinity by reliving our lives, taking all of our brokenness and, and bringing that into himself and reversing the curse. And they would look at verses like 2 Corinthians 5, where it says God was bringing the world back to himself through Christ. And so as Jesus was living, he's bringing the world back into the divine. He's healing that brokenness, reversing the curse. Or 1 Corinthians 15, as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. And so as Adam brought brokenness into the world, Jesus becomes the second Adam and brings life into the world. Just as Adam lived this life and died, Jesus lives this life and he dies and and rises again. But again, he is taking the darkness and taking the brokenness, absorbing it into his divinity, and connecting us so that we are always connected with the divine because of what Jesus did. Just another way of looking at the cross. Now, there's actually sort of two big categories of this question why did Jesus die? There's a category that looks at this question more as a hospital view. And there's a category that looks at this more as, as a, a courtroom view. And so far all the views we've looked at and some of the views we'll talk about at the end are more of a hospital view. And that is they view God more as a doctor. A loving, compassionate doctor who has no anger at the patient, who has no frustration with that pa- patient. That The only thing in the doctor's heart is to heal the patient. And so they come and lovingly Work on that patient and heal that patient. The other major view is more of a courtroom view where God is viewed more as a judge. And he's on the stand and he looks at humanity and he, can, he judges them as guilty and there's payment that needs to be paid because, because they have been convicted as guilty. Now the courtroom view actually didn't actually really become a really big thing in Christianity until about a thousand years after the death and resurrection of Jesus under, under St. Uh, Anselm is where this view began to kind of grow, and then later, especially during the uh, Reformation, the courtroom view, at least in the Protestant church, became sort of the dominant view. And for most Protestants, a lot of times, this is the only view they know. They only know of the courtroom view. They they actually sometimes aren't familiar with some of the older views of the hospital room. But let's just take a look at some of the courtroom views, and these you may be more familiar with. And, that, and a lot of Protestants would answer it this way, you know, uh, why did Jesus die? Well, they might say, well, Jesus died to satisfy God's sense of justice. So this is, again, God on the throne. He is a just God. And, and, and you know, of course, as Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the judge says, you're guilty, you sinned, you fall short of my holiness, you fall short of my glory, so you deserve to die. And so then Jesus steps into the scene and says, well, I'll, pay, I'll take the penalty. Or sometimes God steps off the throne and, you know, is Jesus and takes the penalty. And in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, you know, God made Him, so we're judged guilty. So Jesus steps in and says, well, I'll pay the cost. And so God makes Jesus pay for our crime. Uh, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we may, might become the righteousness of God, and so Jesus comes in, he pays our ticket, he pays our fine, and the judge is satisfied, and then we get to go free, Uh, as Jesus said, it's finished, or now the idea of of there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ, why? Because Jesus paid our speeding ticket, he paid our fine, and God and the judge is now happy, and so now we can be in relationship because all the fines have been paid, sort of the, the courtroom view of the question. Uh, sort of one notch above this is sort of a more intense courtroom view, often found more in kind of Reformed theology, some Protestant theology, and that is, if you ask someone, well, why did Jesus die? They would say, uh, Jesus died to appease God's anger and wrath. And so this is, again, the courtroom scene where the God's on the throne, and, and this, this judge has got a little more anger and wrath towards the, us who have committed these crimes. Um, very intense. This is probably best described in Jonathan Edwards. uh, Some people say famous. I say infamous. I don't know why it's a famous sermon because I don't think it's a very good sermon. (laughs) But his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And and this is coming from God is Wrathful and Angry God. Uh, He says this in his sermon. God that holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear you in his sight. You are 10,000 times as abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever. A stubborn rebellion did his prince. And so uh, we are kind of awful in our, in our eyes. And, and they would even say God even, even hates us until Jesus steps in, or we've been chosen and predestined, and then God will love us, Uh, and so God is this angry judge, and he has wrath towards us, and then again, you know, Jesus steps in and says, well, I will take your anger. I will take your wrath, and so the father pours out all his wrath on his son, and then because God's anger is finally satisfied, then we get to be free, and there's no condemnation in us because all of God's anger is satisfied, and now he's happy because someone paid the penalty of our Sin. Uh, it's a bit more of a harsh view, as you know. World famous NT right. Uh, he says, "If that were true, then we need to write, rewrite John 3:16 to say this: God so hated the world that he killed his only Son." Uh, again, this kind of wrathful view of God, and they get this, of course, from Romans chapter five nine, where it says this: "Since we have now been justified by his blood." how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So they would see the cross is actually saving us from God's wrath. So again, God has anger, or he is a just God, and we've been declared guilty, and he's angry, and so Jesus steps in, or God steps off the throne, and he says, I will take the, the, the punishment of this. And a couple of the issues with this, of course, are one, people question, well, I thought the Bible said God forgave us. Uh, is it actually forgiveness when he also demands Uh, payment. I mean, if someone hurts you and you say, well, I forgive you, but you still need to pay, is that actual forgiveness? Or the picture of the prodigal son, you know, the broken son coming home, the father doesn't say, well, first I need to kill your other son in order for me to accept you, or first you need to pay all that money back for me to accept you. No, the, the father just seems to forgive him and not demand payment. And so some people will bring that up in response to this view. Now, another view will take this idea of wrath and look at it differently. Uh, this is uh, called the Christus Victor view. This is actually, again, one of the earliest views that the early Christianity had. It's also a very popular view today. Uh, sort of the penal substitutionary atonement where there's an angry, wrathful God is kind of falling out of favor in Christianity today. Uh, but this view would say this. Jesus died to save us from the wrath, which is sin, Satan, and death. So it's not God's wrath. It's the wrath of sin and Satan and death. It's the wrath of this world, the wrath of our own brokenness, the wrath from Satan because he's the one who's coming to kill, steal, and destroy. It's it's not God. They will point out that Romans 5, 9 has been translated incorrectly in some translations because again it says we're going to be saved from God's wrath but you notice a good translation actually in the Greek will the note will say the Greek word is actually just the wrath. The wrath of God is actually not in there. It's not in any of the original text. It just says we're going to be saved from the wrath. And so this view says, exactly, we are saved not from God's wrath, because he loves us, he's not angry with us. We're saved from the wrath, and it's the wrath of Satan. It's the wrath of our sin. It's the wrath of our own brokenness. It's the wrath of this world. And, and certain translations actually do translate it properly. Good old King James is one of them. Uh, it says, we shall be saved from wrath him, not, not God's wrath. In fact, the parallel verses seem to agree, like 1 Thessalonians 1.10. It says, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. And because of the Protestant Reformation, we just kind of insert God's wrath in there, but it's, it's actually not there. So this view says it's, it's the wrath, the wrath of Satan, the wrath of this world. It's, it's not, not the Father's wrath, but it's Jesus rescues us from the wrath of this world. And again, lots of texts to back this up. Uh, Hebrews 2, it says, Only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. And so Jesus died. Why? It wasn't to appease an angry God. It was to break the power of the devil because the devil, it was his wrath that was wrecking the world. Or Galatians 1, 4. The Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Not, not from an angry love of Christ on the cross. And that is what changes our hearts. That's what changes our mind about who God is. Father Richard Rohr, who is was a Catholic, um, he says it this way, Jesus did not come to change the mind of God about humanity. It did not need changing. Jesus came to change the mind of humanity about God. And so it wasn't God up there angry with us and, and frustrated and demanding justice and payment. It was God saying, I love you. Why can't you see that? And so Jesus is sent So that we finally see, wow, this is who God is. He's a beautiful God. A loving God. He's an amazing God. This is the kind of God I want to be connected with. Revelation 13.8 says, The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, uh, God has always looked like that. It says in Revelation that, that God doesn't just look like Jesus when he died on the cross, uh, other-centered, self-sacrificial God for that moment, but God has always been an other-centered, self-sacrificial kind of God. And so this group would say, this is why Jesus died, so that we might finally see that God is good and loving and beautiful and wonderful, not angry, not a God that needs all these sacrifices. Uh, Jesus came to change your mind about who he is. Um, I mean, the very definition uh, of God is wrapped up in the cross. Of course, you know, God is love. And how is love defined? First John three sixteen. This is how we know what love is. That Jesus laid down His life for us. And so all these things are debated. <laughs> and we see them even debated in, in our theology. I mean, I think a lot of us know that song, In Christ Alone. Uh, you know, there's that phrase in there, you know, the wrath of God was satisfied. Uh, that song is debated. I mean, in 2010, the, the Baptist hymnal, change that phrase to that uh, the love of God was magnified. Uh, 2013, the, the, the Presbyterian church, when they put out their hymnal, w- w- wanted to put that hymn in because it's kind of a cool hymn, but they didn't like that line, the wrath of God was satisfied because you know, that view makes God out to be this angry, wrathful God. And so you know, they contacted the authors of the song, you know, can we change that to the, the love of God is magnified? And they kind of refused. So it's not found in, in the Presbyterian hymnal. But, but again, there's all these different views <laughs> out there of the cross. And when you run into your brothers and sisters, uh, you may run into different Christians who would answer this question differently. And, and, um, but in the end, we know the cross shows that God is for us and not against us. As Roman 8 says, "...and all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when we look at the cross and even all this confusing atonement theories, we know one thing. We are so loved and that God loves us more than we could ever, ever imagine. And so Father, we thank you for your great, amazing love that you so love the world that you sent your only Son, God, that in him we may have life, and as Jesus said, have life to the full. So, God, as we enter into this Easter week, God, we pray that you would help us to celebrate your death and resurrection and all that entails our changed lives and your goodness. God, we glorify you. We honor you. God, we, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.